The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Hello there, welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews all in one place. On Tuesday's show, Open Doors and a Design for Life, multi-award winning architect Amanda Bone joined me in studio. Aoife Martin told me about her one-woman show, Nursey, inspired by her life as a nurse. An Irish watchmaker based in Switzerland talks about navigating this luxury industry in the home of horology. And on Friday's show, Kevin Hannafin discusses the lifelong benefits of learning music. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. 9.34 this Tuesday morning. Good to have your company this morning and uh, very good to have the company live in studio of award-winning architect, presenter of Home of the Year, a member of the editorial board of the RIAI House and Design magazine. It goes on and on. Amanda Bone, <laughs> welcome to studio. Nice to see you. It is lovely to see you. Do you know, if I can say I had a highlight of the pandemic, was actually meeting you and chatting to you <laughs> and being on the Late Show. <laughs> Well, that's a bizarre start to it. But, so, yeah, that was one of the late lates that was um, no audience, uh, very quiet. Uh, but the three judges, you guys came on. It was it was a lovely experience, actually. It was good fun. I was just delighted I didn't make an idiot of myself. <laughs> it's not possible. Do you know, I'm actually more nervous today than I was actually going on the Late Late Show. And I think mainly because I'm on my own. I don't have the two judges don't have backup. to back me up. OK, well, you've nothing to be nervous about. People will be surprised that you're nervous because you come across, certainly on the TV, as particularly confident and when you're making your judgments. So I wonder. Well, you see, on TV, if all else fails, I think you can stand there and smile. <laughs> I now have to be articulate this you morning or be. someone's going to pick me up in it. Well, did you have a nice weekend? I mean, are you are you ready for today? You know? I had an amazing weekend. Okay. And were you away or home? <laughs> no, I was working and I got through so much of my work that I actually felt usually relieved. I took yesterday off. Good. But that's the life of an architect. You're always working. <laughs> a lot of people might take a day off and declutter. Um, but what do you do if you have no clutter in your life? <laughs> well, actually, I do have clutter. <laughs> No, you don't. Have you seen Have you seen the scene in Friends where I think it's Chandler um, discovers his girlfriend's secret cupboard? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my defence, yeah. we have a small home. I have maximised storage. I've got flush storage, floor-to-ceiling storage, reset storage, storage people don't even know that exists. But we've one secret room that I let nobody into, not even my mother. <laughs> you open the door and it's just piled high. When I go in there, I simultaneously cry. <laughs> <laughs> and laugh I thought if anybody sees this room What is in there? Just stuff because I am a minimalist I, and, and I just I, I have to be around cleanliness just just no clutter I mean look at your desk It's not bad <laughs> but yeah. no, How on. can you I'm work not, with that though? Oh, no, I, I need to explain this So these pieces here of paper here are let's say you you keel over and this isn't cluttered. This is where I'd say, well, Amanda's fallen on the ground, so I'm going to go here and talk about this. So I'll immediately have somewhere to go, so I'm not completely lost. That's one. The coffee is the coffee. Yeah. The water flask is the water flask, obviously. Uh, everything has a roll here. That's grapes in a bag. That's an email. Just Okay, that should be over there. But otherwise, this is a clutter-free zone. This is a very, very tidy radio desk. I'll just pick you up on one element. Yeah. Sustainability. What's yeah. that cup? This, which, this no, one? No, the cup. The no, coffee I, I, cup. My, my, my beaker that I fill with water every morning. I'm impressed. My flask. I'm impressed. My beaker. <laughs> I'm back to school. I was seven again. But what, my, about, what, what is that? 
This is a fully compostable yeah. cup okay. that's, that, that we put coffee in when we get them in from, from the canteen, which that's why it says everything in this can go in the right bin. So that's what that is. So thank you for pointing it out, but we're done. I want to get back to that room in your house. So is it, is, what class of clutter is it? Is it your past? Is it archivey stuff? Or is it just junk presence? Or what's in the room? Not the past, because I'm very much someone who looks towards the future. You know, the past is great, but it's done. So I'm always thinking Do you not have old school reports or photographs of your family or... Do you know a recently moved house, refers to my own home, and we moved in just before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. okay? And at that stage, we actually brought everything from a previous home to our new home and said, when we get there, we'll just, you know, sort through things we don't want, we'll give away. But I just got into such a state, I actually gave away everything. <laughs> Nothing. So when it came to Christmas that year, we had no Christmas decorations. It was brilliant. You gave everything away to charity, charity shops and people who might want that stuff. Okay. And is the rest of your house, without? I'm not trying to pry too much, but is it is it very clean lines? Is it it's Scandinavian? It's not Scandinavian. It's, 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 um, it's, it's very restrained. Um, it's, it's, it's very calm. Mm. Um, it's very when, when, when I say clean you know the sharp edges clear edges a, a, you know I painted everything white but there's a huge amount of colour um, because I, 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 I collect art yeah. and for me I feel that adds the colour and also I collect furniture which to me Furniture are themselves pieces of art. Oh, I agree with you. Uh, I always think also a, a log fire. I mean, this is it's like a dancing painting in a room. I don't I, know if you probably hate that. I idea. think I, I need to bring you in. I, I teach in TU Dublin School of Architecture yeah. in, in fourth year. And, and TU Dublin is actually leading the way in terms of of uh, dealing with the climate crisis in yes. terms of education. So I need to bring you in and teach you a few things. No more log fires. No, no more log fires. I don't think I'm ready for a world with no log fires. Well, I recently designed a new built house and there was no fire. And the clients, they actually didn't want one. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'd always thought of it as the focal point in a room. But it's quite an interesting exercise to think about the room without a fire. But that is the way forward. I Yeah, I'm very unhappy about that because I know it should be the way forward. I do understand that morally. But I just think the fire brings something to my life that is soul fulfilling the smell the texture the, the the sight of it everything but do you know what it's doing to the environment and I'm 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 an, an asthmatic I've had asthma since I was a child mm-hmm. and actually I can't sit in a room with a fire because it's sapping all the oxygen right um, um, so every time I go to my parents house I have to say Get rid of it, get rid of it, turn Are that they, off, turn that. Do they have a, a, a real yeah, fire? Yeah, they live, they live in a, a beautiful old home. I was very lucky yeah. to grow up in, in, a, in, in a fabulous Victorian house and oh, every nice. room, including my bedroom. I used to have a fire in my bedroom every evening during winter. Did I'd you sit really? there, I'd be studying, I'd be in bed, I had a, yeah, Did a you, coal fire. Were you brought up in Downton Abbey? This is this is so old-fashioned. I was brought up in Bray County Wicklow. <laughs> Same thing. Um, so, but can you not burn fire, some sort of certain fuels in a, with a real in a real fire that are okay? You can, and do you know what? I'm going to get this technically incorrect. <laughs> so you know, there you, are sorts of sealed systems, and f- yes, that, that, you that can kind of But yeah, otherwise, yeah. you want. But to in terms of the open fireplace yeah. uh, of old times, you know, with coal burning or fossil fuels, that's what they're moving. That, away yeah, I understand, yeah. and that's what you're. Te- I mean, you, you've you've been saying before that when you're lecturing, uh, you find that the emphasis on what the students, uh, their approach to architecture and living, is so much different to how it was when you were a student. It is. 
completely different. I actually don't lecture. I teach in the... Teach, sorry. To, you know, well, teaching in... Teach, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I teach it because it is kind of different in School of okay. Architecture. I teach in the, 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 the design studio. So we set the students' projects to do and then we guide them through the design process. So by the time they get to fourth year, it's, it's brilliant because, you, you know, you're having architectural conversations with them. But now in terms of, of the way of teaching is changing hugely because it's all about how do we build sustainably? Mm. How do we design sustainably? What materials do we How do we import materials? Or not. Because you've got to think about the embodied carbon. When I started my practice, when I think about it now, I would, uh, if the clients, my clients were interested in a tile, I think nothing of ordering a tile from China. Mm. Never thinking about the air miles. Or is it a, a sustainable source? Is it a sustainable way of, of, of manufacturing? Um, so the way of teaching is, is, is changing hugely. Can I ask you a question? I, I don't know if, it's, if, if this is one that you can answer, Amanda, but can everyone afford to be uh, a sustainable or econo- ecologically or environmentally sound? Or is it a little bit in the preserve of those who have a higher income? No, and that's interesting because, because good design is clever design and good design is inherently sustainable. Yeah. So good design, it always revolved around making the most of the orientation in terms of grabbing the sunlight and, and the daylight. So in terms of, of that element, it hasn't changed. More it's come back to the type of materials we use and the type of way we, be, we build and, 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 and the building process. So yes, it is. It is a it, it, it is it is a doable thing. Um, when you were in school, I'm jumping around a bit, but I'm very curious to know when you were when you were a young girl in school, say in first year or second year, was it was it then that you thought design art? Because I find that you know when I meet kids in the toy show, you can see future designers and artists. They just have a, a way about them. I think anyway. Was that was that for you or uh, since? Uh, can hear, uh, when I can first remember people asked me what I wanted to do okay. and I think that was seven I've always been interested in design and that first manifests its way in I was obsessed with car design and I remember you know we'd, it would take, back then I think took between five or seven hours to get to Donegal where we went on holidays mm. and I just spent my time looking out the window and I learnt off every type of car designer and manufacturer and that's where I first became aware of design and then I remember my brother was very interested in music and he'd buy albums and the whole album covers I was fascinated Yeah, beautiful, with. yeah, yeah vinyl and then, album covers yeah, And then as I, I grew up I kept asking my parents to drive up and down certain streets so it was something that um, I always wanted to do and I remember the leaving cert the, the, the deadline for the CAO I had one thing on my on my CEO form, architecture UCD, and I remember my dad coming into my bedroom at midnight, absolutely freaking, really? going, "You've got to fill something else in." I said, "There's nothing else I want to do." And I had to think the naivety, but uh, so it was just it was that from from right from day one. My colleagues upstairs, the 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 women among the team, uh, were saying that they were wondering about this, and I'm, I'm kind of kind of echoing their their point and question, which was, were, were you in an all girls school? They thought you were in an all girls school. And they were wondering, did you have the uh, it, the academic faculties to equip you for such a career? Because they were saying that maybe guys had tech drawing and different things that might have been, you know, out of the hands of, of an all-girl school in that case. Or- I went to, yeah, I went to a fabulous school. I went to Holy Child in Kalini and it it was a making of me because it was a very small school and I, I'm very lucky, very blessed to have had, had that upbringing. And in terms of architecture... 
you know, you, you don't need tech drawing. I would say that, um, and you don't actually need to be able to draw because it's not how you draw, it's what you draw. So you need to have an interest. Okay. Uh, mathematics is certainly useful in terms of everyday working. Um, you've got a good head for numbers, yeah. A good, you you yeah. do. I mean, it's, it's, it's in everything do. that you do in, um, in terms of scale, proportion, design. But just to be open-minded, to be interested, to be forward-thinking, to be interested in everything from history, geography, history of art. So I wouldn't... Um, uh, I, I, I don't know about boys' schools versus girls' yeah. schools, but things like technical drawing, I'm sure it's, it's useful when you start, but it's, it's not. Okay, so don't let it be prohibitive to you yeah. if, you're, if yeah. you have that dream. Dream yeah. on and, yeah. and pursue it if you can. Um, did you, uh, when you talk about art, you said you like collecting art. Uh, yeah. Do you prefer Irish art or international art? What sort of things do you do? I, you, do you care? I do. No, I do. Well, I, art in a way like music or, or, or books, it has to really move me emotionally. So I like uh, kind of abstract very aggressive art, I think, in a way that would upset me. I remember as, as a child being brought to the, the uh, Hugh Lane Gallery and seeing Brian Maguire's Liffey Suicides. Mm-hmm. And that was the first I heard about suicides. And I remember reading into it. But I remember standing there and just being completely overcome with emotion for not really understanding why. Really? And then my dad brought me to Rosk. Do you remember that? Yes. And, and that just, again, opened my eyes to, to art that, that I had never come across. And in fact, years later, when I was working and I walked into the Curling Gallery and there was a, a self-portrait by Brian Maguire. And I remember walking there and that would be 10 years after I first saw his work, The Liffey Suicides. And I just stood there and the same emotions came over me. Yeah. So... I, I, you know, I, I like all type of art, um, uh, uh, but it really it has to move me, as I said, like 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 listening to a song. Yes. Um, um, so, but as I grow older, in fact, I'm I'm becoming uh, more interested in in maybe softer work or or different type of work. But but it doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, famous or not famous. It's just if I look at it and, and it's moving. So if you see if you like it or liked a piece of art that that moved you to um, upset you. As you said, yeah. aggressive art. Would would you buy a piece of that and put it on your wall at home? Or probably every piece in the house does that too. Yeah. Okay, so my question to you is, and, and maybe I, I'm I'm emotionally lacking in intelligence and and in, in some ways, but that's why, which I'm happy to to to, to say in, in in advance of the question, which is this: if I had pictures on the walls around my house that I find violent and aggressive. I don't know if I'd be happy walking around my house. I'd find, I'd be, I'd be like, oh, Jesus, like, that's heavy, that's heavy, that's heavy, that's heavy. And maybe it's, I'm too superficial or something, but I would, I'd, I'd need something more, uh, easier to look at any given day just for my soul, for my mood, my heart. Yeah, I suppose when I walk around like this morning, because I was really nervous coming <laughs> on here, I had a cup of coffee. It makes me forget myself. I look at a piece yeah. and it takes me to somewhere else and I think about something else. And and when I look at something like that, I think different things depending on how I feel. But I love the way it's like going to a cinema. And it's what I really missed in the pandemic. I love nothing better than going to the lighthouse on a Saturday and watching two or three movies in a row because that's how I forget about myself. And what are you trying to forget? You know, just the everyday, you know, stresses of working and you know paying your mortgage and you know all those bits and pieces and the horrendous um, war that's going on you know every, everyday life I like yeah. things just to grab me and, and lift me out of it so are you know. very emotional fish if you'll excuse the expression extremely but, emotional yeah, I'm a very like, sensitive person and people think you know <laughs> no but it sounds like yeah. you, I mean that we can joke about home yeah, of the year in a yeah. second but, but uh, which is fine because we, we, and we will but it sounds to me that you're, you're, you're moved by mood and atmosphere and visuals and feelings. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and it's the same when I go into a building. I hadn't 
again, because the pandemic, I hadn't done a huge amount of travelling, but I went down to Visual in Carlo on, on, on Saturday yeah. to look at an exhibition called Icy Earth by a tremendous Irish architect, Tom, Tom de Poer, mm-hmm. of an enormous admiration for. And the exhibition, it's on until the 22nd of May. I'd urge anyone to jump in the car and go down and have a look. Okay. Um, but the fact that I was in a building that had such height and such beautiful materials, and I just sat in the reception area, and I said, this is amazing because I hadn't experienced something like that in so long because I've been, you know, been, I've been at home. Yes. But it's, it's so anything like that. I, I just, I just, again, I, f- I find moving. You can appreciate, I was appreciating the beauty in the way they had board marked the concrete. <laughs> you really are. Uh, okay. You're, you're taking it all on board. I understand yeah. that. Um, uh, regarding the question, does, I, does Amanda prefer Irish art or international art? Of course, not everyone would appreciate the nuance in that question, but it was more just Irish art has a very distinctive feel to it at as international, I think that'd be fair, fair comment. Absolutely, and I love, I love supporting Irish artists yes, as that's, well. And that's part as of I it. hope people will support Irish architects. I'm yeah. sure, and yeah. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Okay, quickly on home of the year. Even though I was going to talk more about it, but because I, f- I found the, the the direction of our conversation went somewhere else in in a, in a more interesting way, I think um, the home of the year persona that you deliver is definitely not the one that uh, we're experiencing this morning. So is that the production company decision or is that you putting on a a mask? How do we... No, because the other thing is I am great crack and I love having a laugh (laughs) and I love taking the mickey out of people and if you get me in a group of people there is nothing better and I will laugh and laugh and laugh and no, that that is honestly, that's completely me Um, but just being around Hugh and Susie or Hugh and Sarah and and the whole crew it's it's I can't explain it it's just it's just so much yeah. fun you, you know, seem to be enjoying it more even this year I could see it there, there was a sense of devilment in the air and you were having none of Hugh's uh, tens that he was handing out like, like he's doing confetti. that on purpose I, uh, he sees that I like something and goes I'm gonna give that yeah, yeah, <laughs> just so to irritate he's me he's just needling it but it's light hearted it's great fun and you need that and, and oh now uh, more than ever you it's, know? it's great escapism as you, as you yeah. oh, sorry one thing you mentioned that you go to the lighthouse and you might watch two or three films in a row that's yeah. that could be up to oh. six hours of your life. Wes Anderson is my favourite. Excellent, love Just that. Did you stick. see the French Dispatch? I did. Wasn't I've it seen beautiful? it three times. No, really. Well, it's such a joy. See, I can see why you'd love Wes Anderson because it's so it's it's. It. But you can't watch the you, you don't you miss it so much when you watch it the first time and then you watch it the second yeah. time. All the things. Look at that in the top left hand corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't see and that. The detail Look at what she's wearing. And notes and oh. cufflinks and. Have you got, have you got his book? No. With 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 stills from from the films. No. Oh, it's it's incredible. And they're all wonderful films. Oh. They're all fascinating. As you say, they're, they're works of art, actually, in some respect. They're not for everybody, but they're super. What about stoves? Are they in or out? Somebody wants to know. Stoves, are they in or out? Um, uh, uh, stoves, if you like them. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Uh, Ryan, I agree. A fire is a living presence in a room. It's beautiful. Well said, Anne. Um, but I think we're probably behind the times. There. Yeah. Ask the architect, what would, uh, this is Amanda Bone we're talking to, what they would do if the electricity went due to the snow and you have no heating and no fireplace. What would I do? Yeah, I suppose the point is, if you get rid of the fireplace, what happens yeah. when the when there's uh, if an electricity uh, goes? It's, a it's, camping stove. A camping stove is your answer. Amanda seems like a lovely person. Isn't it? Don't she believe it at all in rooms having character? And life without a fire is depressing beyond belief. Fire has been an elemental part of life since time began. You see, the fire, the fire starters among us are, are, just, are gathering. Are <laughs> I can't gather. answer any of these. No, no, but, she, but look, let's, let's, why don't we just say thank you for the compliment and we'll move on. Uh, I've recently refurbished uh, an old house and sealed up all four fireplaces, says D in Cork, knowing that sometime soon 
we will not be able to burn fires. It's a wrench, but I had to make that conscious decision as an individual contributing to environmental change. You're nodding and nodding mm-hmm. and nodding like here, here. Okay, and that- But there will be benefits. We'll have a, we'll still have a beautiful planet to live on. Which is not, we're <laughs> just saying a lot. Uh, very much enjoying the interview with uh, Amanda. For anyone who has studied the Enneagram, um, they, they will recognise that Amanda is a number one in the Enneagram. It's a very old study of personality types. You're a number one Enneagram person. I'm look that up. I don't know what I'm it is. Fascinated. It's, it's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. It's not a word I'm familiar no, with, but there you are. My clutter room, says another, is called the room of requirement two, the term from Harry Potter. So it's... Um, Things obviously in there that you may or may not need, but they're there just in case. I have cluttered drawers rather than a cluttered room. I you can't deal with yeah, cluttered I know, drawers. I know, I know, I know. I, I know, need no. to know what's in every single drawer. The I lie ed- down a bed. <laughs> I need to know what's in the back of that drawer in the kitchen. I'll, or I'll get up like I did last night. And? And I'll, I'll have to sort it out. I went to bed well, early because I had to get up early to be. Yeah, I only appreciate that. But I still that. got out of bed to, and got rid of that extra drawer. earphones that were in the wrong Is drawer. Is that what it was? Yeah. You're, this is there's a whole psychology here. We could do a, a six part series on this. Um, the Enneagram is a system of personality typing that uh, describes patterns in how people interpret the world and manage their emotions. The Enneagram describes nine personality types and maps each of these types on a nine point diagram, which helps to illustrate how the types relate to each other. So it goes from the challenger, the enthusiast, loyalist, investigator, individualist, the achiever, the helper and the reformer. Number one being the reformer. Apparently you're the personality type that says reformer. I don't know what you're reforming exactly, but you seem to be reforming something. I'm going to look that up as soon I as think I you are. Here. I'm going to get into trouble. Why? I have to talk about the Simon. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Okay. Keep an eye on Roger. Oh, yes. So, Thank you. Well done. This? Yes, yes. I could imagine. Jeez. I'm so, I'm here principally. Are you reading this? Talk. I am reading this. <laughs> and I spent my Saturday morning typing this. this. Yes. Oh, that's okay. so fun. Okay, read away there. Yeah. Because I, I, I have a sip of water from my environmentally you, you sound of... flask. Thank you. On a messy desk. <clears throat> okay, so the RIAI, which is a registered body for architects in Ireland, and they promote the value that architects brings, uh, c- collaborate with Simon Open Door. Yes. Okay, now this has been going, this is the 18th year, and I've done it every single year. From start. It's a fantastic initiative. Okay. So what we want is we want any architect who's listening to this to go online to RIAI, SimonOpendoor.e and register, because actually we need more architects. And then any members of the public, you don't need to be a homeowner, but who would like to have a consultation with an architect. So the way it works is you give a donation of 95 euros every cent goes to Simon. Wonderful. And in return, you get a one hour consultation with an architect. Some architects are doing them online. Some of them are doing in in, in their practice. Mm-hmm. But every architect is giving their time for free. It's invaluable. I, I mean, I've done it, as I said, since it started. And I'll tell you, last year, I spoke to a lady for 45 minutes about white. She had 19 different colours of white. 19 shades she, of white? Is that you said colours of white? Is it shades I, yeah, of white? Yeah, you're probably... No, no, I'm not trying to be a catchphrase. No, I think you're right because it's not a colour, it's a shade. I don't, that many she shades? knew more about white than I did. It was fascinating. And then three weeks later... Did you later, have her removed? We, no, we had a fantastic... <laughs> Get her out. Three weeks later, she came back to me, showed me photographs. Oh, it looked beautiful. Um, but it's, it's, as I said, so what happens in the consultation? Everything from, from wanting to talk about your kitchen counter to renovating your house to building a new, be, new built house. So it's, it's a one chance. And the thing what I love about it is that it's not a business meeting. So I'm more relaxed and yes. generally the people are more relaxed because they're giving. And you know yourself, if you're giving something, if you're helping somebody, you have a really positive outlook. Everyone's winning. We had great crack last year. Or mm-hmm. IAI.ie. Amanda Bonas, it's been an absolute pleasure to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us. 
question. Let's do it again another time soon. I would soon. love to just Same keep here. chatting to you. Yeah, I know. I've gone on an hour or so. But I've got a few ad breaks to take. I've got to say goodbye. So we'll do it again soon. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Our guest this morning is Aoife Martin and she has written a one-woman show inspired by her life as a... Nurse. As a nurse. Okay, <laughs> nurses of Ireland. Anyone working in the medical profession will enjoy, I think, our conversation this morning because you, your, your, your nursing career as, uh, and your acting career are crisscrossing together. Mm-hmm. But let's say hello to Marion this morning. Who's Marion? Marion is my mum and uh, she's a retired nurse yes. and she would have inspired me to do nursing in the first place, I suppose. And where is she today? Uh, she's at a retired nurses association uh, trip with uh, 40 nurses, retired. Where are they? I think they might be in Kilkenny. Like, they get like, sure. a, like a bus to Kilkenny yeah. to hang out. What a great thing to do. So all the retired nurses have an association yes. where they gather around to... To uh, celebrate to being a nurse, <laughs> <laughs> I thought the gathering to give out stink. Do you remember that doctor didn't like him? Do you remember that one didn't like her? But no, it's actually much more celebratory. Yeah, and they're going around Kilkenny, the beautiful streets of Kilkenny. And I think Kilkenny they're in now, and they're doing a little bit of a tour around, just you know, a little bit of a getaway. What a nice thing to do! I mean, in retirement, just to yeah. keep, keep the connection going. And mm-hmm. and when you were little, then and mm. did you did was your mum's nursing very much part of part and parcel of your life at home? Yeah, completely. Um, I suppose I've, I always remember her going to nights and obviously there would be a lot of tears. But yeah, yeah no, I always looked up to her as a nurse. And um, yeah, for most of my youth as a little girl, I would always have thought I want to be like ma'am, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, where did she, where was she nursing? She was in Castle Bear. Okay, so you yeah. were at the Mayo Connection. Yes, yes. And when you got to say... Fifth or sixth year. Let's let's go to the CAO form. I think that's mm-hmm. always kind of a pivotal point in an Irish person's life. Yes. What was your number one? Decision? At the time, it was art. Um, was it? Yes. All the way through secondary school, I had gone down a more artistic uh, route, um, which to my parents' delight. And um, everyone said, you know, you'll be a nurse like your mum. I was saying, no, no, no. no. Um, but then by the time it came to it, literally the night before, I swapped everything around and put nursing first. Why? I don't know. Such I must have got calling. I, I literally don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was just more, I, I you know, I had a lot of, uh, you know, pe- talking to people about art and maybe, you know, there's not much work out of it and stuff. And yeah. then really then, I don't know, it literally just was something I thought. Maybe I'm better off going with the nursing first. So you least. went for it. You went yeah. for it. Um, but obviously, you know, underneath, bubbling underneath always was this artistic, yeah, yeah. creative <laughs> urge. Yeah. So what do you do with that urge as a matter of curiosity? Do you do you suppress it or can you you know embrace it, especially when you were studying mm. to, to become a nurse? Well, when I was in Galway University, I would have joined the Musical Society. Uh, of course. Uh, and had to go with the Drama Society. That wasn't, failed that. Uh, okay. So I went back to the musical one. Um, but no, yeah, that was really it. And kind of, that kind of got me through, you know, scratched my creative itch in college. Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, it was definitely a good outlet to have because being a student nurse, it was great fun sometimes, but it was quite stressful, I, it, you know. It strikes me uh, that yeah, being a student, anything in the medical world, mm. be it a doctor or a nurse, or I'm sure there are other aspects of it too, seems to be, and I, I mean, like I've never been one, but it seems to be like a, a very intense, 
um, very poorly paid and very crazy hours. Yeah, why do we do it? Well, there's the question. Mm, That's yeah. a, you, you, you're now presenting <laughs> and guesting on the show today. It was great. Uh, but no, please answer that question if you um, could. God, it's hard to say, you know, I think a lot of nurses would agree that after a very stressful shift or a really hard, experience, tough experience, mm. you kind of think, I don't know if I'm able for this. And But then there might be one little tiny experience that would have been a lovely exchange with a patient or family or relative. Um, and that kind of, I suppose, destroys all the other bad yeah. feelings that you might have had about it. Um, but yeah, no, mostly, to be honest, it's like... I. A lot of times uh, when I was a student, I, I kind of questioned if I was able for it at all. But yes. yeah, those kind of nice moments pull you through, really, when they happen, which when they do, it's, yeah, you're kind of, they're, oh, they're obviously, yeah, they, they sound like they're profound enough to, yeah. to take away all the rubbishy bits that yeah. you didn't like. Yeah. And you qualified then as a nurse. And where, where did you end up? In? I trained in Galway. Yes. And worked there for a little while. And um, then I decided, well, I went traveling uh, in Africa for a few months myself and my best friend, uh, who was a nurse. When we qualified, we kind of said, I don't know if I want to stay here now. Yeah. I think uh, we might jet off. So we... Headed off to Africa. Africa. Yeah, for a few months. Was that a, was that a, a, ple- a leisure? It no, we volunteered, but we actually, we didn't do, we, we did a TEFL course. So we taught English in an orphanage and then we did um, nursing as much as we could mm. in, a, in another, um, in Tanzania. We were in Ethiopia and Tanzania and um, we couldn't really, the, the language barrier was Too hard much. enough to, yeah, to nurse. What did you think of those countries and people and Ethiopia life there? Ethiopia was one of the most amazing places really? I've ever been. Yeah. yeah, oh my God, it was just, I I literally, it was hard to leave it. It was absolutely beautiful. The people yes. were amazing. Because I think a lot of people would have associated with, you know, famine times That's and right. poverty. But it, it is beautiful and there's not many tourists there as well, which makes it even more. Yes. Yeah. So you, that's an experience that you would yeah. rate highly in your life. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but then you're back to back to work. Yeah, then came back. And I think it was after that I was like, uh, thought more seriously about acting. So okay. then went back to Galway, nursed. And uh, then I did part-time acting classes and then applied to the Gady School of Acting. And, and then you're into... You, yeah. you, you ended up as a general nurse in A&E. Yes. Um, and you've said that, that that's when things got scary. And yeah. we'll come to the acting in a moment, if mm. that's okay. But I'd love to know, what does that mean? Because I think that for a lot of us who you know, have passing knowledge of the health system for those of us who are fortunate enough not to have to be there very often. We don't really see the cold face or feel it. Mm. So when you say scary, what does that mean to, to somebody who doesn't understand? Um, I think uh, a lot of the times when it was staff shortages, uh, you felt a little bit out of your depth and <laughs> you're trying to hold it together for somebody in a, on a trolley or mm. a family member looking at you going, you know. Um, so that was scary for me. But I... Where I worked, I ended up, you know, being very lucky to be kind of trained in by fam- fabulous nurses who were just out of this world. And th- th- those A&E nurses that were, you know, full time there all the mm. time, where they were just fantastic. But it was all, I mean, the scary moments, <laughs> you just kind of had to keep ploughing through without, 
because he couldn't like he couldn't just go ah do you know what yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go home <laughs> I can't take any more I'm of just going to go yeah. to the toilet yeah yeah do you work your own machine um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here but yeah. you can't put your fingers in your ear and, yeah. and, and that, that's what it is it, 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 this is uh, I don't know how you feel about the word vocation to me it sounds a little old fashioned and yeah, a bit out of, out of you're nodding with that yes yeah, yeah that's I complete am. nonsense <laughs> so then why would anyone invite this career in it, 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 it sounds like we're back to the original answer you gave us yeah it's uh, the good bits outweigh the bad bits. Yeah, no, they do. They do completely. And I think um, at the end of the day, a lot. I, well, definitely the pandemic showed that nurses are, you know, we're human as well, not like angels, you know. Yeah. A lot of people said, well, how are you doing? <laughs> These are all angels. And you think, I well, how feel do, like an angel. Well, what does, <laughs> do I look like an angel to you? Uh, when do you... How do you react to that thing or your angels and your vocation, all that language around nursing for people who aren't in nursing? It's really convenient. But how, how do you feel about it? Um, well, I smile and nod usually and go, oh, yeah. thanks. But I think in general, you, you just certainly don't feel that way when because <laughs> little do they know, like you literally are sweating and like, you know, absolutely on the inside, everything might be very stressful, but you're holding it quite a... You know, yes. can. keeping the um, face on, the yeah, game face yeah. on. Yeah, but uh, no, I like. I mean, I think people mean well, and they, you know, the people, you know, you always hear as well. You know, nobody ever thanks you enough, and it is lovely to hear it. But I suppose in the moment, you're kind of just like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Were you nursing during lockdown? I was up until um, you know what I continued. I was in A and E up until September 2020. Mm. How was that? That was that was tough. I found that quite. Yeah, that was testing. Because when when it happened, we we don't need to relive lockdown because mm. it, it triggers people. Like I mean, it really does, isn't it? Yeah, you see, it even I read an article now. It goes, Ugh. Yeah, yeah. But, but we'll t- touch on it briefly if you don't mind. If mm. whereby yeah, you were a nurse, you're watching the news like everybody else, and you're hearing um, schools closing, people case numbers up. When did it become apparent to you that this is dark and deadly? Um. Well. There was like a calm before the storm, really, mm. for A and E's because we, you know, everyone prepared for the worst, and it was literally a load of staff just standing. I did nights mostly, so we were all just there was no no patients were coming in because people were told to stay away, yeah. and then it came like a tornado, and it was nonstop. And I suppose the moment where I, when I was like donning the PPE gear for the whatever time that night and. Yeah, just um, going in to the COVID section, sweating and maybe not having had a break or, yeah, to be honest, it was those kind of nights where you were just completely drowning in, you know, that where you kind of maybe thought, I I actually don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm able to look after all these people at the same time. Um, And that, that was tough, but like. As I said, I left that area and a lot of nurses stayed on and I d- a lot of nurses did leave like the A&E's as well, do you know? Because? Um, because of the you know, the level of stress, I think, mm. and the it, they didn't have staff. Um, but no, it was very testing. But um, yeah, that like the, at that moment, I remember just one of those nights where you were kind of like, is this going to be it now forever? We're yeah. going to be... Yeah, um, and just the uh, the most awful feeling would probably be that you weren't able to deliver the best care to the people that were, you were looking after. Do yeah. you know? Um, because you're worried about them, and yeah, absolutely, <clears throat> and the uncertainty of it all, and oh, the yeah. people sitting in cars outside, going, "I can't come in," and mm. oh lord, you were dealing with a lot of psychological uh, yeah. drama 
physical yeah. sickness. There's a lot. Of yeah, and a lot of uh, nurses in A&E might agree that, you know, because they stopped visitors coming in. One mm. part of that was was nice for us in that there wasn't like a, yeah. a court of people around. But in another way, it wasn't nice for the patients at all because, yeah. you know, I'd be the same if I had nobody in with me. And you're Lonely, just you're isolated. You're, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was hard. To, that was hard as hell. Yeah. And, you know, I remember at the time the, the Abbey did the Dear Ireland project mm. um, and that offered you, strangely, this outlet. And yeah. now, now we're now converging, marrying, if you like, the two careers in yeah. your life. Uh, because uh, you wrote this monologue that uh, was so well received. Congratulations. Tell us a little Thank bit you. about that. Um, yeah, so that was in the first two. I was actually, I went off the two weeks in March mm-hmm. at the very beginning with symptoms. Um, I never got swabbed, but I assumed it was COVID. Um, but I went off and then I was called by the Abbey to do this piece. They knew I, I had... Um, they, were, they knew I was a nurse because I had been creating Nursey, yeah. uh, the play. And so they asked me to write it. And <laughs> I was saying earlier, like, I mean, it was quite a depressing piece. Yeah. Now I look back at it, I'm like. Oh. But it was a depressing time. Yeah, it was. And yeah. It, no, it really was. And, <laughs> and it was really reflects, I think, um, at that time. And, yeah. and this was um, Norma Sheehan, wonderful actor, playing, yeah. playing uh, delivering the monologue. Mm. And uh, this is a hospital nurse at the coalface. Um, uh, describing being overworked and and being exhausted. Mm, yeah. In fact, just describing the last ten minutes of our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, except it was a dialogue. Uh, but but it got great reviews. Um, yeah, the Guardian called it a, a slice of lockdown life that is chilling, humane, and tragic at mm. once. So good on you for that. Well, thanks. But yeah. you, they say write what you know. You clearly completely. That, yeah. It sounds like it came from the heart. It did, and it came from I suppose like the nurse in it is uh, she was. She wasn't the nicest of characters now, really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and the it was kind of all the, basically what I was describing to you, those horrible, stressful times where you really didn't have the patience for anyone. Yeah. But then a lovely elderly patient yeah. I was looking after just pulled me back to reality by just being hilariously funny in the depths of such yeah. stress. And that's why, yeah, that's yeah. the kind of things I was talking about, the nice it's amazing. It's, it's amazing how humour is a great yeah. self. Stuff, like, yeah. it, And I think sometimes, I don't know if it's the same in medicine, I know it's the same here, that the darker the humour, the funnier it can be sometimes. Yeah. Where you just go and look, you know. Anyway, the guys yeah. said we're not allowed to crack on air, but yeah. they're, for, they're for either the pub or, or the office, but certainly not for a studio. Yeah. Um, and this brings us neatly to nursey, mm-hmm. um, which is a word uh, I, I want to talk about. Like, because nursey to me, I thought it was like something I would carry on. It's like, oh, nursey. And, uh, and then I said, no, no, it's not. It's, it's a completely, it's a more Irish thing. Talk to me about that. Um, so the name came, well, I, I, I remember being called it when I was a student nurse <laughs> really? first year uh, by, you know, I was on a geriatric ward and a lovely little old lady with dementia had just was continuously calling us. Nursey. <laughs> yeah, nursey. <laughs> okay. So that's where it came from. And since I've, you know, even my mom and stuff, like they kind of, her friends, even we met another uh, nurse at the at a Mayo Day festival at the weekend and yeah. she was like, oh yeah, nursey, like she was retired. Oh, so it's a thing. It's a thing, it's a thing. yes. <laughs> and you spoke to your mom, you spoke to some of her friends to, yeah. for research about the 70s because uh, this is based in? In the 70s. In the 70s. Yeah. Um, um, young, overly enthusiastic uh, girl from Mayo. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling some sort of uh, auto, semi-autobiographical <laughs> vibes coming off this. But yet at the same time, You've got to tell us how many characters are in the play. So I play 14 characters. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
I yeah, regret it maybe a little bit. How now. long is the play? I'm just trying to figure out how many can you fit into. How long is the play? Uh, so so it's 65 minutes in total. Oh, lovely, lovely yeah. length, by the yes, way. Well yeah, done. God, yeah. thank goodness. Because, uh, <laughs> no, but you know, like, sometimes oh, people know. don't know, know your limits. <laughs> so that's a lovely, n- neat, but that means you've got to condense a lot of characters. Yes, yeah, uh, and a story. And a, yeah, and a and story, an and a coherent, <laughs> and an arc. Yeah, yeah. All those yeah. things. Holy smoke, you really set yourself a challenge there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's what it's about, really, and it's a heightened reality. The characters are large and colourful, and uh, definitely based on true events. Pulled apart a little bit a for little dramatic bit. Yeah, effect. Yeah, of course, but... that's the nature of it. Why <laughs> yeah. did you want to have it? Is that in a time where there were no phones or technology? I kind of wanted to just take that away, and I suppose I, you know, people were saying to me, "Oh, you're writing a play about nursing," um, which I had written practically before the pandemic but mm. then everyone was are you going to mention COVID absolutely not <laughs> you mad no do you know what actually that's really interesting Aoife because like, I, when I'm reading books that have been written in the last two years I'm, one of the first things I want to know is are they going COVID or non-COVID mm. a lot of writers like yourself mm. uh, creators if you if you like have have made a conscious decision to pretend COVID didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. it's really interesting, and 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 you know it could be drama on TV, mm. and it could be a play, or it could be a book. But some people have just said, "I'm not setting it at a time." And I'm, why would why were you so determined not to let COVID interfere with a with a very COVIDian time play yeah. uh, play? Because I I wanted to talk about nursing and not nursing in COVID. Really, yeah. I wanted to to talk, you know, a broader, show, yeah, the story of nurses without COVID ever being a thing. And then I just wanted to not have technology in it and just have the simpler times. Oh, much nicer times, much yeah, nicer yeah. times, I tell you, with, without it, even though it has its uses, but by and large, it's yeah. kind of slightly annoying and rather destructive. Um, so this is your, you're not necessarily your life on stage, but it's your first one woman show, um, yeah. as I understand it. And you're going to get to Smock, Smock Alley on the 9th of May. So it's coming around the corner now. Yes. How do you feel about that? I'm very nervous. Are you? Yes, I am very Are nervous. Are you confident as well? Because you can be both. Yes, I'm confident and nervous. Because um, it is a comedy. It's heartfelt comedy, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I need people to laugh. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so, of course they will. Of course they will. Yeah. If they listen to you this morning, they will, of course. And you're, you'll be in the, uh, the Axis Ballymun, yeah. the Whale Theatre. And of course... Great homecoming in Westport. Of course, down to uh, Westport. Town Hall. You'll be there too. So people can go to uh, smockalley.com for the for the, the gigs uh, there on the 9th to the 14th of May. Mm-hmm. Aoife, it's been lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet and you too. And thanks for coming in to see thanks us today. No, on. please, a pleasure. And uh, the best of luck with Nursi. Thanks uh, I have no doubt it'll be packed out because uh, it is a story that I'd say echoes a lot of people listening to this experience this morning. Good luck with it all. Thank you very thanks much. Thanks for your time. Ryan. It's uh, eight minutes to ten. I recently spoke to uh, Eamon McEnany, who's the curator of the Irish Museum of Time in Waterford. And we were chatting about the International Festival of Time. It's happening later this month. And one of its esteemed contributors is an Irishman who joins us on the line from, of all places, rather appropriately enough, Switzerland. Stephen McGonigal, good morning to you. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you for being with us this morning. And tell us uh, a little bit, before we get to Switzerland, uh, let's stay in Ireland. And we go to Athlone. And you, Athlone and watches. Bring it all together for me. Yeah, uh, it's a f- funny combination, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, I would have started with my dad while he worked for the Westmead Independent and the Irish Times as a hobby. Uh, he repaired clocks. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, growing up, there was clocks all over the house in different states of repair. And uh, it was impossible to get get away from it, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, this, so really, that's where he, it started. My dad 
maybe push John, John my older brother, into uh, help them or direct them towards the, the Swiss Institute of Horology in Dublin. The Swiss Black. Institute of Horology in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Yeah, actually, Ryan, most people haven't. And even even I had the experience when I was in Blanchetown studying, there was, I'd go up to the, to the town, Blanchetown, and, and even people in Blanchetown hadn't heard of it. Because it was tucked away, it was near the hospital. And, and of course, it was a very small college, but uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. very, very well respected. And how did it come about? How, sorry, just I'm sidestepping a little bit, but how did uh, Dublin have end up with the Swiss Institute of Horology? Time. Well, it was partly funded by the, the Irish government and also by the Swiss uh, watch, wind, watch industry. I mean, the, the writing was on the wall for an industry, of course. The, the market was huge worldwide and they, they didn't have sufficient uh, people for servicing. And there, there were other colleges. There's one all over Europe, for example, all over the world now, which help uh, service the the quantity of Swiss watches coming out of the country. You know. Um. So you you went there and you were studying watches and clocks and and you you got the interest, I suppose. Did does it become an addiction or just a, a point of fascination? Yeah. Well, it was certainly a f- fascination for me. It sort of happened very quickly, almost overnight for me, because I wasn't really interested with the cl- in the clock side of things when my dad was doing them but mm. when I saw what John was doing it was uh, it was immediately fascinated if you can imagine it's, it's very different it, you know for one thing it's hard to see what the watchmaker is doing at any, at any point you know even if you're standing over him I, I thought, thought there was a certain mystery to it you know and uh, yeah the minute I saw saw that I was hooked and uh, I, I you know the, the course in Dublin was was very full on it was very tough, but but I enjoyed it, and and uh, once I moved to Switzerland, I really loved the work. And yeah. you you had to um, drift towards London first. I mean, the, the holy grail for watchmakers is Switzerland, I understand. But you ended up in an antiques place in Piccadilly in London, doing what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't want to go to Lo- I wanted to go to Switzerland straight away, of course, and that's all that was on my mind. But at the at the time, it was extremely difficult to get you know, a visa in Switzerland. So mm. I, I got a job offer in London and it was a fantastic experience. It was restoring antique and vintage watches oh, for some antiques in Piccadilly. And uh, very, very tough. You know, you, you, one day you're in college where there's no real-time restrictions, you know, and the next day you're, you're given, each and every piece was different. And you were given a watch and it was like, you have to do this in this amount of time and, that's it, or else, basically, you know. So it was very, very tough, but a hugely beneficial experience. It was really good. Wonderful. And then Switzerland came calling at last. Where did you land yeah. there? <laughs> I, I was extremely lucky there as well because I followed John into this uh, very small company that was making uh, uh, movements and mechanisms for other brands. And the mechanisms are called, it's, it's a strange term, Ryan, they're called... Um, complications mm. so it's it's watches that do more than just tell the time people would be familiar with chronographs for example that would be a complication uh, and then it goes all the way up to combinations of different compl- of different complications we do the McGonagall watch for example the Kjol is a minute repeater uh, which yeah. chimes out the the time mechanically um, so extremely extremely complicated over it, 300 it, it sounds like something out of a very old fairy tale. That's that. That's what that you can add these complications to the watches, 
you know, it, it sounds so modern and so old at the same time. Yeah, well, actually, Ryan, it's funny you say that because uh, even in these modern times, the 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 industry is embracing the the technology, uh, yet keeping that. You know, we're, we're still making mineral repeaters, which had a function way back. You know, with with no electricity, it was for the very wealthy, where they could they could hear the time without I don't know lighting. You know, could they have this timepiece by their bedside? So so it had a function way back then, but. Uh, with the advancing, we use CNC machines today, 3D 3D software for design. Yet we keep making these, uh, uh, like the mini repeater. The, the, technically, it hasn't changed, but it's mm. it's, it's as popular as ever. So when we hear about Calvinism, and I know again we're leaping into the the realms of history here, but John Calvin, French uh, theologian, reformer, he he banned the wearing of ornamental objects and jewelry, and would watches not fall into that. Yeah, uh, well, it was sort of, a, I suppose, a, a loophole. The, the way they saw it was that the watch had a, a function, whereas the jewellery was almost frivolous, you know. So um, as if you were doing watchmaking, it was okay. And so a lot of jewellers moved from jewellery making to watchmaking, and, and so the, mm. the industry exploded in Geneva. And why, why Switzerland? Why Geneva? Why Basel? Why, why, why Switzerland in particular? Well, Switzerland in particular because it was the the French Huguenots um, escaping persecution, you know. Of course, uh, well, I, I'm only learning this now myself, but mm. with the, we might talk about that later, but with the exhibition in a, in a couple of weeks' time in, in, in Waterford, there, there was an attempt to... Uh, settle Huguenots there and uh, start a watch industry in Waterford, which is incredible. Incredible. Again, so we're going now from, as you say, Switzerland to, to Waterford. And now it becomes clear, as as per uh, our brief conversation uh, not too long ago with Eamon uh, McEnany about this, but let's go back to yourself then. F- about 15 years ago, you established McGonagall Watches. Here's this Irish guy in the heart of watchmaking in Switzerland uh, with what, a, a particularly, I mean, does it have a Celtic or an Irish feel to your watches or are they just watches or watches? Yeah, so I started with my brother John but it's, um, Ryan, I, it's a very tricky thing. We, we always wanted to bring the our, our Irish heritage and, our, and our, you know, our, ourselves into the watches but you don't want at the same time to have, you know, shamrocks or leprechauns. Mm. You know, we we wanted an Irishness to the watch but nothing, nothing so obvious that it screamed uh, Irish in a sort of corny way, but uh, so the design is extremely important to us. And the best compliment I've got from a lot from a lot of collectors and enthusiasts is when they take up the watch, they look at it, and they say, you know, it looks Irish, but I don't know why. Yeah. And, and I think that's the best compliment you could get. But and where and when I can, I, I work with, uh, I collaborate with Irish uh, artisans, and uh, of course, my sister Frances, an artist. Uh, she does all. She's responsible for the design of all the engraving and all the McGonagall's. Nigel O'Reilly, over in Mayo, in Ballina. I've just recently done a, a, a unique piece with him. That's for McGon watches. Now that's a different thing, but uh, he's a extraordinary talented uh, jeweler. And uh, so the Irish, Irish, Irish thing is extremely important, and uh, I try to carry it into every piece done. Every, every screw, every spring, every bridge made by hand. I can't imagine what level of intricacy and excellent eyesight you must have. 
<laughs> it's, start, it's starting to fade a little bit <laughs> with age, I'm afraid, Ryan. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, some some watches there. A lot of components will be finished by hand for sure. But as I said earlier, with technology, you know, um, there are certain pieces. In fact, a lot of pieces that are made with CNC machine, if you like, roughly, and then finished by hand. Uh, but yeah, every single component down to the screws are are finished by hand, be it polishing, graining, whatever. So a huge amount of time spent on each and every piece. Now, when you were at the trade fair in Monaco some years ago at the Irish stand, uh, somebody that will be very well known to our <laughs> listeners arrived up to your stand and uh, tell us who he was and what he wanted from you and what he, what you, what you spoke about. <laughs> yeah, we that was very early on in, in the in the life of mechanical watches. It was one of our first exhibitions, actually, and you know, stone broke uh, years of development, and you don't make money during design development, of course. So we got wind that uh, Bono was in in the building and was going to visit the exhibitors and. We thought, this is great, an Irish man, uh, you know. Uh, so when he came to our stand, he actually introduced him. He came in and he spent a lot of time with us. I'd say he was there a good half hour, mm. and, um, which I thought was very impressive as well. He he, he spotted uh, stuff a lot of people wouldn't. You know, I said about the subtleness of the design. He saw things in, in, in the design. We had the tourbillon there, and... Uh, a lot of people wouldn't see it, but he saw it straight away, which was quite impressive. But you saw he, the which? Did you say the, the word I couldn't make out there? Was it tor- tourbillon? Tourbillon, yeah. It's, uh, again, another complication. Uh, so the, the the heart of the watch, if you like, the timing, um, rota- the, the balance rotates in a cage, and, and this uh, negates any faults in uh, due to gravity, in fact. So um, and while it's... A, very technical thing it looks very beautiful because it's constantly rotating so Bono's looking at this and he's saying he's loving it obviously he's loving the Irishness of it yeah yeah and I mean at one point we were already delighted that he was there and, and, and you know giving, giving us the time and giving us the compliments and all the rest but at one point he said that it was one of the most beautiful things he'd ever seen wow. which uh, which we thought okay job done we <laughs> sail <laughs> we in the watch. bag yeah, we, well, Ryan, I was thinking maybe even three or four, one for each of the lads and you know, the bands, but uh, <laughs> um, it didn't uh, come to pass, but maybe he's still still deciding. He's he just making up his mind. I mean, he's got, he's got to make, this is a big decision. How, how much does such a, like the vulgar question, how much does, does such a watch cost? Yeah, no, it, you're right, Ryan, they're, they're not cheap at all. I mean, the, the tourbillon is uh, 120,000 euros, uh, so. Okay. Okay, uh, I didn't. I didn't know we were dealing at that at that level. So, how do you make a living selling watches at that cost? You know, uh, despite despite the price tag, it's really not easy, Ryan. Uh, um, if you if you imagine the amount of like for the Torbian art, or especially for example the the Minera Peter the Kjol, there's years of of yeah. design and development before you even bring a product to to the to the market, and then. Uh, you know, we talked about the components, each and every part finished by hand, the case, uh, the amount of people involved. Like there's a huge team behind each and every watch mm. from engravers, enamelers, case makers, strap makers. So you're, you're, you're buying a painting by the sounds of it or a piece of sculpture. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, 
I'm glad you said it, Ryan. I <laughs> no, but no, but I'm looking at <laughs> I'm looking at the tourbillon here, and you know, it does look like something very beautiful. I mean, and if you're into horology, and if you're into clocks and watches, as equally as if you're into paint, or if you're into uh, whatever it might be in terms of um, art, this is in the same world. So that's why. Uh, that that explains the cost and and because of the rarity of it all. I mean, when you think of, um, let's say, rugby international Robbie Henshaw, he's a fellow Athlone man. He's been wearing one of your watches for for the past number of, uh, for the past year, I should say. So, does, when somebody like him wears the Force at Titanium, does that garner a lot of interest for you? Is that like a is that like an ad on a wrist? Uh, that was certainly the idea um, when when I got in touch with Robbie at the very start of. That, that's the McGon now, the, 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 the sister brand. Uh, that was certainly the idea that Robbie would be an ambassador. Uh, and indeed, he's become a lot more since. He, I mean, he, we, we chat a lot about all aspects of the, of the company. But yeah, I mean, it's huge when you see, nobody wants to see it on my wrist, Ryan. No? <laughs> nobody yeah, cares about yeah, on yeah. my wrist. But when they see it on somebody like uh, Robbie, well then, mm. you know, of course, it it, it uh, draws the eye, you know. Um, you're you're living in Switzerland now, and you're you're with your partner Katrina. Um, how did you meet her? Where's she from? So she's from Westport Mayo. Yes, uh, but we met in Neuchatel. We actually met in uh, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, in Neuchatel. Pardon, yeah, yeah, Neuchatel in Switzerland is a uh, village. I actually live in a smaller village nearby now, but that's where I used to live in Neuchatel. So how did a, a, a woman from Mayo and a man from Athlone meet in a village in Switzerland? Uh, I suppose, you know, the expats tend to gravitate towards each other, Ryan, but uh, we met, uh, it sounds so corny, but we met in a, in a pub. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose it's inevitable in some ways, but uh, we met uh, in a pub in the Chateau. Okay. Um, which we actually bought a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> That's the longest comma I've ever seen <laughs> or heard. <laughs> we liked it so much we bought the pub. Uh, uh, <laughs> and what, how did that? How did the pub go? Was it a successful endeavor for you, for you both, an Irish bar? It was. Yeah, there was a few of us involved, but it was. It was, certainly was. I mean, we, when we bought it, it was. Uh, it was already well established, but it was very small. Um, but we brought the Irishness to, to it, if you like, the, the, the service, the, the friendly service. Um, and we brought, we, all, we had brought a lot of, over the years, we brought a lot of uh, Irish musicians, flew them over from Ireland. Oh, great. Sessions. And uh, we, turned, we actually renovated it quite a lot. So we turned it from one floor into a three-floor bar. And, and in fact, uh, we turned it into one of the highest grossing pubs in Switzerland. Oh, congratulations. That's, that, what, what, what's the nearest city to, to the village or to the town you're talking about? Uh, so we, we'd be placed almost halfway between Geneva and Zurich. Okay. And yeah. the bar is no longer yours. Is that right? Yeah. Would you believe we sold it just before COVID? Oh, you lucky thing. Yeah. Time. Time was on your side. It was a little bittersweet though because we sold it to um, a friend. But oh, no. thankfully, thankfully, the um, you know the, the the support here from the government it was oh. sensational, and uh, even the landlord the landlord said, "Listen, if you're if you're not in business, if you're not open, then you don't pay rent." So uh, he he's he's not bad. You know, he didn't suffer. Yeah. 
I yeah. understand. That's good. Oh. And now it's all going It's all going concern again, which is good news. Oh, so Back to the watches briefly before we say goodbye. Do you wear a watch? Uh, I used to wear one around because, <laughs> you know, the McGonagall ones, I'm afraid I will never be able to afford okay. unless my financial situation changes. But the McGon one, yeah, certainly I, I, I wear one of those if just for testing now. Yes, time, yeah. you're, you're just, it's just research, Stephen. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, you have to wear a very expensive <laughs> watch just to make sure it's working. And you're going to you're going to be obviously here back in Ireland for the inaugural Waterford International Festival of Time, starting May nineteenth to twenty second. Um, it'll be hosted by the Irish Museum of Time. I always think of my friend John Joe uh, from the Toy Show who introduced me to the world of horology many many years ago now, and. Um, I suspect you're going to what are you going to showcase some of your watches I'm now really interested I'd love to see this now after our conversation Would do you, will you be bringing over some of the, the higher end watches with you is that the, the plan yeah yeah absolutely I'll have a couple of pieces from McGonagall and I'll have uh, pieces from uh, McGon watches as well including the, the piece the unique piece I did with Nigel O'Reilly the, the diamond set um uh, Forza. Mm. Well, when you see a big black car rolling up outside the front door and Bono gets out to say, actually, I think I will have that watch. In fact, give me four of them. Uh, we, <laughs> we had a good year at the office. Uh, I'm expecting you know, that. <laughs> here's hoping. Steve McGonagall, really enjoyed talking All to you right, this morning Brian. and uh, wish you, I wish you every good, good luck. Brian, can I just ask, yes. ask to plug one thing, please, if yeah, it's sure. possible? Of course. Uh, I'm in... I'm just finishing. I'm, I'm working on creating a, a unique piece for the um, refugee crisis with the U- Ukraine, mm-hmm. and uh, it's almost finished. It takes a while because you know the dial. It's it's a McGon piece, but it's a it's a hand painted dial, handmade strap, and all the rest. So th- those things have to be changed for this design. But I plan to put it up uh, in in an in an auction, and all proceeds will go. Uh, towards the support for the refugees and uh, just just to put it out there now so people look out for it when it does go up for auction and it, where, where can they go to find that because they'll be very interested to see what it looks like and everything yeah. oh, I'll, have, I'll have it up on the website for sure when it's ready okay and then, and then information on, on, on how the auction will go okay and your website uh, is Stephen yeah. uh, mcgonwatches.com mcgonwatches.com that's m-a-g-o-n watches.com yeah. All right. It. Best of luck with everything, Stephen. Thanks for your time thanks. today. Thanks a million, Ryan. Thank you okay. very much. Fascinating. And, uh, and, and, and to you. And a little reminder then, of course, that the, the festival is uh, at uh, visit. You can go to waterfortreasures.com for more information. All right. Enjoy that immensely. We'll have more for you after this. That business of taking up something that you say, I've always wanted to. You know that sentence that begins, I've always wanted to. Why does that sentence not end for some people? Why is it just dot, dot, dot? Um, and, and, and for others, they do it. I have a load of dot, dot, dots. Why, why, I'd always loved to have. And piano is definitely one of them, which is why I want to talk to Kevin Hannafin. Good morning, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? And nice you're, to talk to you. Yeah, you're based in uh, TU Dublin. It used to be DIT. You're on the new Grange Gorman campus. You got in touch with us, Kevin, um, as head of orchestral studies. Why? Um, well, I suppose post pandemic, we uh, well, we were locked down quite a lot for for during the pandemic, and I think you know music and the arts were the first to go and the last to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of switched very quickly to online. Um, but coming back, especially in the past three months or so, we our, our ensembles are back, and just the outcry from people to get ensembles back and get things rolling and get people playing, it really kind of drove home to us how important music is to people and how important 
playing an instrument is and what you know the far-reaching benefits of playing music other than like you're making music but like you know what music does to your brain and, and you know how it makes you feel and how you uh how you live your life like it's well it's, it's obviously been a huge part of my life since i was like eight years of, mm-hmm. of age mm-hmm. um but um i was prompted by i suppose some of the, the the people who wrote in sort of saying you know i i always wanted to do this or i never have or i i did it to a certain point and then i just stopped um and we were really sort of keen to get people back into music get back people back playing. Uh, we've decided to open up our orchestras next year to absolutely everybody, um, whereas before you needed to, to, to be a student of, of the conservatoire or, or the university. We, uh, we're working with Dave Brophy, who's oh, yeah. on our staff. Of course, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and like, professionally working with Dave, he, he's absolutely amazing. But um, what he can do with uh, a, a student orchestra or an amateur orchestra is absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, so we've decided to um, open that up to everybody and people who have maybe played for a short period of time or who've given up and want to get back into it but just haven't found, found the right way. Uh, we're kind of going to try and uh, do it like that and, and just get people back playing and, uh, you know, like just have those kind of benefits there the whole time in, ter- in terms of your mental well-being and, uh, and, and what it can I know um, a sister of mine who, who, you know, during the pandemic got herself an old jalopy of a piano. It didn't cost an awful lot of money, but but fulfilled a lifelong dream of just teaching herself through, you know, whatever, YouTube or what have you, to play the piano. And I can see it. I'm actually quite envious now, which is not a very attractive trait, but I am that that she can now play the few tunes and that it's, you have that for life and it was good for her uh, sense of well-being. And I can see why, you know, in a pandemic, that, she wouldn't have done that, I don't believe, without the without that self forced isolation. Um, yeah. And the pandemic, the pandemic needed music. It need, we needed every time, even on the Late Late Show, uh, with live music, the, the, just that sense of a salve yeah. for people. You know, it's a very important yeah, to, thing. There's nothing like live music. You know, music is 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 absolutely fantastic, and, and we all speak the language of music. You know, we have seven thousand languages in the world, but we all understand music. Mm. Um, and then live music is. I suppose the next level, but playing live music is—it's. Uh, it, I suppose you can't put it into words. That's why why it is music. It's just this amazing feel feeling, and and learning the instrument. You have these kind of what I call mini micro achievements along the way, you know, and then that's endorsed by people, you know, say, oh, you, you sound really good, or you're getting better, mm-hmm. and then that creates this motivation, and you keep going and going and going. Um, but it's just to have that kind of constant improvement you know i think achievement is kind of underrated um but just to achieve something every single day and, and feel good about yourself you know where can you go wrong it's, it's, uh, is there an age like i, I mean i i'm looking for a kind of um a plumas answer for you kevin from you kevin not that you will give me one but is there is there an age at which you kind of say i ah, know you know what don't don't be don't don't even try now or do you think that somebody can retire for example and say I think it's worth a go now. Is there always a, an opportunity to learn? I think so. Yeah, I would definitely agree. There is always that opportunity. I suppose it's finding the right teacher for you. Um, we've certainly got people, uh, uh, a, a gentleman who completed his master's last year, having retired uh, from a pretty high-profile job, and he came, came back and, you know, he had played all the way along through his, his career, but came back and said, no, I just, uh, you know. And, and it, it was an amazing end-of-year recital. Um, but he was doing it for himself 
and you know for his understanding of music um, and possibly he got more out of doing a master's in music than, than somebody who's doing it as, as, a, as a career option um, you know just you, you could and you could feel that in, in, in his playing and, and in his performance um, I think the key thing is is the what is called the skill to challenge ratio you know yeah. if, you're, if your skill is 100% if you can just be operating at 4% above that you're going to get into this kind of flow state which um you know, is, is extremely rewarding. Um, so, it's, you know, it's never too late. You're not going to become uh, a professional recording artist with dice gramophone, um, but how many of us are anyway? Mm. Um, but it, I don't think it's ever too too late to start. Um, I think the word talent is kind of bandied a, 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 about a little bit too much. I kind of would see talent as a, a skill set that you've honed through years and years of practice, but you got you got to put in that work. Um, and... I don't even see it as work or hard work. And people talk about, oh, it's, you know, it is hard work. It, you, you just work hard, but you work hard. It, it's, it's quite self-serving, actually, you know, mm. because you like doing it. Um, and so the hours and hours of practice that's, that I've put in, my colleagues have put in, you know, they're very enjoyable. And you, you play what instrument, Kevin? I play saxophone. Oh, what a, yeah, what a beautiful instrument to play. Yeah, well, I started on clarinet when I was about eight, and okay. then I, I, I kind of moved to saxophone at the age, I don't know, 12, 13, and yeah, it just kind of sat with me like, right, this is it. And, you know, I performed academically well in school and didn't really ever want to go and do music. And then I suppose music just chose me then at the end when it came to the crunch. And my father was a musician and uh, he kind of waited for me to to push back and say, I really want to do it. And then he was 100% supportive, but you have to, you know, really want to do it. But, yeah, no, I love the instruments. Like it, it, it is. It's just part of me, I suppose, part of my life. Did you ever? And is is it very hard for you as a saxophonist to listen to somebody learning to play the saxophone who doesn't have a musical ear? I mean, how many times do you want to bash your head off a wall when you hear somebody who's really insistent, Labrador-like, enthusiastic, <laughs> but utterly incapable? Well, I don't believe that anybody is is. I think now, Kevin. Like... Let's be now. Come on, we're all <laughs> adults here. You have to. Sometimes you have to say, "I love your enthusiasm, but for the love of God, maybe consider and something else. Maybe darts." <laughs> oh, I'm terrible at darts. Um, <laughs> I think only about about five percent maximum of people in the world are actually tone deaf. Okay. And I think a lot of people would just say, "Okay, I'm tone deaf because uh, I can't sing," um, but that is. That's, that doesn't mean you're tone deaf, but just a lack of, of musical training and uh, probably in, in a lot of cases, a lack of confidence. And then you have 2 3% who are highly gifted. Mm. So there's the, the 92% in the middle of, of the rest of us who, um, you know, it's, you just got to, you know, work hard at it. Mm. Um, but I think people who, right, okay, maybe haven't achieved the professional standards and, you know, are working hard, they're getting way more out of it than probably most professional musicians, you know, for yeah. themselves. You know when um, a fridge door stays open for too long? I do. And it makes a certain Beep. sound, like a binging sound. Not just beeps now, you're a musical guy, Kevin, you know. It makes a certain, <laughs> like, it can be bing bong, bing bong, or something like mm-hmm. that. I know two fridges that make two different beeping sounds that I'm that I, that immediately trigger the sound of a song that I know. Uh, yeah. One is Live and Let Die by Wings, uh, Paul McCartney Wings, and the other is... 
the Mr. Man theme tune from the cartoon from my childhood. Does this make me gifted or insane? Um, I don't know if it makes you either. <laughs> <laughs> I am thrilled with myself but, with this. But knowledge. I think it, it shows a certain aptitude. You know, you're recognizing you know recognizing the two different pitches when you, and, and you sing songs. Um, from that, yeah, I used to do the same with with um, the old buses in the eighties when you'd be walking, you know, through town. Go on, go on. I'm feeling less. I'm feeling less alone now, Kevin. Keep talking. <laughs> and they used to, they used to screech, you know, the, the carbon on, on on the on the metal plates. They don't. It doesn't happen anymore. But buses, you know, the, the old orange buses used to, to to screech. And I would challenge myself then to try and sort of go, okay, what is that interval, or what yes. what song can I make out of that? And um, yeah, I remember telling somebody and he kind of thought maybe, yeah, maybe I'm a bit insane or a bit... No, bit no, weird, no. You see, if we talk this out, we've become less mad. Like, it, there was a... We talked about this before on this show. There was the, there's the bell tower in the City Hall in Dunleary that, that that has the song that goes... Bum, yeah, bum, bum. slightly out of tune. Slightly out of tune. Dum, dum, dum. And I said it was like once in Royal David City. Then somebody else said, no, it's beginning of sorrow, David Bowie. Dum, dum, dum. And then somebody else announced freedom by wham. Dum, 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 do, do, do. So it suddenly turned into this big... So I think we're not we're not alone here, Kevin. I think your bus screeching, my fridges, the bell tower. There was a tap once in the uh, Clifton Blues Festival that turned on. Somebody pointed out it sounded like Dermot Morgan doing a Charles Hawhey and Scrap Saturday just for... Mm. It was just like, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so you, it sounds, you know, uh, music, well, music is everywhere. That, yeah, well, it is everywhere. It's amazing that, that the two notes can, can, can just, you know, spark that sort of yeah. conversation or, or that sort of reaction in, in your brain. But, it is, yeah, music is everywhere. Like, we, what would we do without it? Well, you know, George, George Martin, the Beatles producer, did a, a, a documentary on the origins of music, I think, at one stage. He was talking by I remember him crouching down by a flowing river and and pointing to the to, to pointing if you can do to the soundscape of it and mm-hmm. where where that could run into a musical run of notes and then he brought us to a church and where the monks Gregorian chanting and how they would sing their and then it would bounce off the ceiling and bounce back and suddenly now we're into harmonies and uh, you know, it's it's as you say, it's 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 everywhere, and it's it's a gift. Yeah, and it, it's it, I think it's it's our gift to 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 you know try and appreciate it, and and, and uh, you know, it's a gift to us rather than having a gift to be able to do it. I think yeah. we should really try and embrace it, and you know, get as many people you, you know supporting the arts and getting back to listen to music. Like even playing an instrument not to a high level just gives you a huge appreciation of um, somebody else and, and the skill involved and it, it allows you to appreciate music just in a, in a different way and move you um, we had one we were doing auditions this week and I had a eight-year-old child come in and, and you know she, she has never played a music instrument before and I said you know like why do you want to play the violin and she said um well, music makes me, makes me calm, oh, and yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. And I was just like, "Wow, God, you're eight, yeah. and you figured that out." <laughs> um, you know, uh, and and it it really it it moved me, but it kind of just took me by absolute surprise. She was so emphatic in the way she said it, like you know, yeah. like as if like of you not know this already. Yeah. Um, and you can just kind of see that. 
one of my pet hates is, is, is double screening and, you know, people watching TV and scrolling through things or, you know, kids playing computer games and on YouTube at the same time watching somebody playing the game they're playing. Um, and it's just this information overload. Yes. That's, you know, when you, when you, when you get just in a room on your own and, and play an instrument, it's, it's kind of like time will stop momentarily um, and life stops everything that you're maybe kind of not worried about, but you know, concerned about, it disappears because you're so focused on what you're doing. But it leaves you with this, uh, I suppose, glow afterwards that of you know a sense of achievement, but also of just inner calmness. It's, it's a bit like jumping in the forty foot. That's <laughs> in, 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 a different inner glow. <laughs> oh, I'd rather listen to lyric for an hour than jump in the forty foot. <laughs> uh, Kevin, it's good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your for your take on all of that. Appreciate it and good luck not with the, with your with your course in TU Dublin. Thank you. Great, thanks very much. uh, Kevin Hanfin joining us there. He's the Head of Orchestral Studies at uh, TU Dublin in Grange Gorman at 9 minutes to 10. Uh, I'm doing a Master's myself in TUD, says Valerie, in Social Sciences. And my classes are in the same building as the Conservatoire and I cannot tell you how beautiful it is to walk around the brand new East uh, building and this beautiful music is flowing from some of the rooms and it's a privilege to study there. And by the way, my 16-year-old is a beautiful pianist and does a lot of self-training, so it's not uncommon. I'm 64, says another. Uh, I took up the piano last September. I completed my first exam a few months ago, now preparing for my next. Really, uh, really enjoying it. And why should you have to be a child or teenager to learn something new? I had never played the piano before, was able to play the scale of C, found a wonderfully encouraging teacher. Well, that's key, isn't it? Uh, Primary school teacher, actually. And I spent two hours... Uh, practicing it yesterday I hadn't intended to but I completely lost track of time as I say you're never too old isn't that lovely